Welcome to the podcast of Saltbox Church, where from beginning to end, it is just Jesus. Nothing more and nothing less. We're starting the book of Acts. I mean, this is an incredible book. It's a messy book. It's a funny book. I'm sure, I I hope that as we get into this and we begin to actually walk through it, you're going to simultaneously see the glory of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the infilling power of God in people. You're also going to see brokenness in churches. You're going to see backbiting and fussing and gossiping and frustration and people leaving and people going different directions. It is an absolute glorious mess. Guess what church is today? It really is. Because I am being made new in Jesus. And if you're in Jesus, you're being made new. And we're all at different spots in our journey. And so that's what I really love about the book of Acts is it's about us becoming um, sort of the body of of Christ. So let's let's pick it up there. I'm going to start in Acts 1. I'm also going to cross-reference the last couple verses of... Luke, Luke Luke 24, if you want to put your finger there, um, and we'll come back to both those in just a minute. So let me start with an A.W. Tozer quote. Who knows Tozer? He's one of my favorites. Oh my goodness, he's incredible. If you don't know Tozer, you got to read some Tozer. Okay, here's what he says. Revival and blessing come to the church when we stop looking at a picture of God and look at God himself. Revival comes when we are no longer satisfied to know about a God in history, and we meet with the conditions of finding him in a living, personal experience. Conversely, revival cannot come if we are far removed from God. It cannot come if instead of hearing his voice, we are connected only with an echo. Lord Jesus, I pray as we open your word on this morning that you would allow us to become more progressively and deeply and intimately acquainted with your person. Father, I pray that far beyond just singing songs, far beyond just reading your word, that you would allow us to know you and be known by you. Father, I pray that as we share, that you would interact with us, change us, form us, fill us, and make us. And Father, I pray that we could draw courage from even the tumult of the New Testament church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so the, the book of Acts is, is fascinatingly to me not about the God who was, it, it's about the God who is, that's right. So it's about this God that is alive and well, and it sort of illustrates and invites us as Christians and as New Testament believers into um, the immorality of the presence and person of Jesus. So in other words, when we read about this Jesus um, in Acts, you can know full and well that the same Jesus is alive right now. And my Bible says when two or three believers gather, where is Jesus? In the midst. Now, he's also theologically and positionally in heaven. When we we surrender our lives to him, the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Jesus comes and actually takes up residence inside of us. So, is Jesus here? Some of you might not know it. 
And the idea of even gathering at church is that you would become progressively and more deeply and intimately acquainted, knowing him, knowing his voice, um, recognizing what he's doing in our lives. And that's why we worship. That's why we sing. That's what that is. It's, it's beginning to acquaint you, help us as believers interact with this holy God. <clears throat> In a very real sense, the entirety of this book of Acts is, is the life of Jesus post-ascension. So when he, when he uh, went back to heaven, being lived out in the church, and therefore it becomes a roadmap for all of us. So I think, think of it like this with me. In the Gospels, you have Jesus, um, you have his work. So the Gospels are like uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament. If, in those Gospels, you have um, Jesus, his works, his suffering, his resurrection. And in the Acts, you have what the disciples do. Those are Jesus' uh, 11 guys and teaches. And then the, the larger group of apostles and disciples who are men and women gathered around them. Um, and, and they are teaching um, you, you get to see what they thought, what they taught, what they do, and the place that Christ occupies in them. So there's this transfer that sort of happens where Christ ascends back to his place next to God the Father, and we as his people become the body of Christ. So, so what Jesus has been doing in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who's now doing? The disciples then, who's now doing today? Say me. You, us. So, so this is the collective, like, like when people go the body of Christ, if you're not a Jesus person or a Bible person, you're like, well, that's kind of weird, the body of Christ. You know, what? You're the hands and feet and face of Jesus? Like, what does that even mean? But literally, Jesus ascended, and we as the church then, uh, as the Holy Spirit is released on the church, we become his body with the responsibility of doing what Jesus did, living like he did, relating to God and to people like he did in our everyday life. That's church. That's what it means to be a Christian. Does that make sense? Okay. <laughs> um, so you, you get this, um, the book of Acts tells the story of a church carrying the life of Christ and invites us into that same Jesus journey. And I already made mention of this, but it's often messy. Acts is full of disagreements and frustrations and people leaving and churches splitting. And like, it's, it is messy. And I would actually say to you today, if you've been a part of church mess, breathe deep. If you've been hurt by church, breathe deep. God is still God. And what is amazing is his goodness is not dimmed even when we as his body, we as his church, fumble the football, fail, mess up, hurt each other. And I want to invite you into this church, which is a safe place where you can be on your growing Jesus journey. And we're going to make some mistakes and make some messes and clean them up and walk together. Yeah? Okay. <clears throat> I think as we embark upon this book, we have to at least consider why Acts. Like, did Luke call it Acts? I'm not sure. We'll talk about that. But does he mean the Acts of the Apostles? Does he mean the Acts of the Holy Spirit? Maybe he means the Acts of St. Paul or the Acts of St. Peter or the Acts of the early disciples. But I think probably more importantly, whether he meant any or all of that, is this is the continuing acts of King Jesus living in and through his new body, the body of Christ, the church. 
Also, as you look at this book of Acts, if you went right from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to the rest of the New Testament, which are largely all letters and epistles, um, epistles is just a Bible word for a letter, um, but if you, if you skip the book of Acts, we would go right into these epistles and have no idea what was happening. So the book of Acts is this crucial bridge that sort of goes from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, into the rest of the New Testament and really gives us this whole blueprint on how we do church and life. Uh, let me also say here, um, there's many people who try to draw sharp lines between where is the Holy Spirit working and where is Jesus working in the book of Acts. Can you do that? You really can't. Sometimes you can, but the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. Okay, and so that's, that we'll use that sort of synonymously as we journey through um, this book. Uh, in terms of like the, the historical facts in the book of Acts, um, and even if you wanted to look at it from a standpoint of apologetics, the history and historical confirmation in the books of, of Acts is absolutely overwhelming. And I would just say, just one little statement, any attempt to reject the basic history that is written here, even in matters of detail, is absolutely absurd. It aligns with history. So you can know as we read this, as we go through this, that it's historical. Uh, okay, I think I am going to start us then in the end, the end of Luke, um, Luke 24. I'm going to read verses 45 to 53, and I'm going to do that um, because guess who wrote Acts? A guy named Luke. That's right. What's amazing to me about this guy named Luke is Luke is not a Jewish person. Um, so, so that's like ethnically. He is not an ethnic Jew. He is a, he is a Gentile. Um, and guess what? There's no white Europeans in the mix at this point. Believe that? No, no, no white Europeans. So, so uh, Luke is a Gentile. And, and so I think one of the things that Jesus is, is preaching, the God of the Bible is preaching right here from the beginning, is two of the most significant books in the New Testament are written by a non-Jewish person. What is he saying? The universality, I don't know if that's a word, the universality of Jesus is far beyond being the Jewish Messiah. He's also the Savior of the world. And so it's, it's indicative, even in who he chose and empowered, to write both the, the um, book of Luke and Acts. Now, what's also fascinating about this is um, Luke was probably a physician. If you look at some of his language, it's like medical. He's real technical in his writing. Um, if you look at, I'm a sailor a little bit, um, but if you look at in a few weeks or months or something, we'll get to the passage where Paul is sailing on the ship to Rome, and he's super technical, like it's real accurate language. But when you look at some of his language, it's pretty clear that he's probably a doctor. So I'm going to call him Dr. Luke, okay? He's Dr. Luke. He's, 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 you know, just the way he is. So he, he wrote the book of Luke, and then he's uh, embarking on the book of Acts. So here we go. Uh, Luke 24, verse 45. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. That's Luke 24, starting in verse 45. Who's he? Jesus. That's exactly right. He, who's he? Jesus, told them this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer. How did he suffer? Cross, that's right, and rise from the dead on the third day. Did that happen? Yes, okay. And 47, repentance, oh, and rise from the dead on the third day. Verse 47, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name. Whose name? 
Jesus, to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And what's fascinating is you can actually trace the book of Acts. It's about 30 years, give or take. But the book of Acts goes through the journey of Jesus and the message of the cross going from um, Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to European countries all the way to Rome. Like it's, it's really fascinating. It's literally happening. Verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. Now, who's, who's he talking to here? primarily the apostles and then the larger group that's gathered around them, which was men and women. Verse 49, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. What's the Father promised? The Holy Spirit. We get all uncomfortable a lot of times when we talk about the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is a mystery. But he's a person, okay? Um, I've once upon a time, um, I stood in Africa at this big waterfall um, called Niagara, I'm not Niagara, called Victoria Falls. Niagara Falls is on a different continent. <laughs> but I remember uh, I got up that particular morning um, and I went out to the edge of the falls and I stood at the falls and with my little toes at the edge. And it's like straight down. And I remember the sense of awe and mystery that I experienced that day. And I want to invite you, as we even open up this book, into becoming more comfortable with a God that has some mystery. Okay? Just like you're not going to be able to figure out Victoria Falls or figure out human life or there's so much we can't get. I would encourage you, wherever you are in your Jesus journey, to begin to get comfortable with a God that carries some mystery. There is no way that a God who is infinite outside of time, who created the heavens and earth by one word, um, there's no way that in our little few pounds of gray matter in our craniums can understand a God like that. You follow me? So invite you sort of into that. So here he goes. Um, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, which is the Holy Spirit, but stay in the city. What city? Jerusalem, that's exactly right, until you have been clothed with power from on high. Until you have been clothed with power. Now, what is that? That's the Holy Spirit. That's exactly right. All right, verse 50. When he, who's he? Jesus, had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany. That's probably where um, the Last Supper was held, which we're going to celebrate the Last Supper here in a few minutes. Um, he lifted up his hands. So who lifted up his hands? Now, what's he showing them when he does that? What's right here? I don't know if they were there or I don't know if they were there. There's different people that think different things. I don't think it matters. What's he showing them? He is showing them he is risen. He broke the back of death, hell, sin, separation, your failure, past, present, and future. He is the resurrected king. He is the God incarnate, Lord of heaven and earth. And he is showing them one final time. I am he. I am. So I'm convinced when he lifted up his hands, he's standing now before a huge uh, group. We're not sure how many, possibly as many as 500. And every person sitting there would have looked up and gone, he is. Remember how in the, in the end of Matthew, it actually says um, he, he commissioned them with this great commission. But then it says, but some doubted. So everything he's doing in these moments is to actually encourage the doubters to stop doubting, welcoming those who aren't sure back into um, sort of deep relationship with him. And then let's keep going. Verse 51, while he was blessing them with his hands in the air, um, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Verse 52, 
Then they worshiped him. Do you think they had music? Did anybody break the guitar out? Was there a microphone? Worship is not just music. It is music. It happens with music. But worship is a constant attitude of our hearts. And my prayer is that God would make us a worshiping church. Um, In worship, in music, in the word, at the coffee station, on the streets. He would make us a church, grow us into a church that worships him. Then they worshiped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. Okay, now flip over to the book of Acts. And I'm going to jump ahead um, because I I want to just, I think this could help. Um, We're going to read starting in verse 1, but go down to verse 9. After he said this, now who's he? Jesus was taken up. um, He was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Okay. So Jesus has been walking on earth for 33-ish years, give or take. Um, He's been in public ministry over three years at this point. Um, He has just been crucified, dead, buried, resurrected. He's appeared to over 500 of them multiple times over the last 40 days. And then he is taken up on a cloud. Why? Okay, so I want you to think with me like a Jewish man or woman of the day. Is the world flat or round? Flat. Heaven is a different geographical area, okay? So, so to them, at this point in time, heaven is like a, um, it's a different location. There's a separate geographical spot that's sort of up and beyond the sky. And in many ways, we today as New Testament believers think of heaven differently. We would think of it as abiding in the presence and place of God forever and ever, amen. And we're not really sure where that is. Um, it's almost another realm. It's another place. It's heaven. It's paradise. But for them, Jesus has been appearing and disappearing over the last 40 days, and it would have been an absolute crisis if Jesus just stopped appearing to everyone. You heard what I'm saying? There was no end. And what I love about God is he's a God of great boundaries and great order. There's always beginning and there's always end. So the reason he brings some 500 people together on a little hill outside of Bethany and then rises up is because he was letting them know my um, my appearing to you randomly in locked rooms and out on the lake in Galilee and at different places and times is now coming to a end. He still appears to people. If you read, there's a lot of Muslim uh, uh, people who experience Jesus walking through walls. There's tons of amazing testimonies about that. But he, he still appears to people. But what he's telling his uh, apostles, and I'm going to say disciples broadly, all 500 of them, what he's telling them at that moment is, I am now going back to that other place, to that other location. I'm ascending back, and I'm, I'm taking the crown um, of life that I sort of took off my head and came to earth as a baby. Um, to live um, fully, fully human, but also fully God, to be crucified, dead, buried, and then to raise from the dead. He's now taking that crown and putting it back on as King and Lord in his resurrected human body. Does that make sense? So, so what he's actually saying is, um, it, it, it is uh, it's a definite end to this 40-day period where he keeps appearing to them. Um, it's a conclusion. It's not going to continue to happen. Um, it, it, it was necessary so that they could understand Jesus had returned uh, to glory. Um, and then, it, we're going to see here in this passage when we read it, but it's necessary to understand the second coming. 
Because it says he's going to return the same way. So there's a number of, of, of hefty theological pieces that Jesus or God is conveying in this ascension. So, and if you read Revelation 1-7, make a note, fact check me, double, you know, whatever, look back there. But it actually says, in fact, let's just read it. It says, look, he is coming on the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. That's what Revelation 1-7 says. So who pierced him? Who drove the nails? Roman soldier. Who took the, the sword or the spear and pierced his side? Roman soldier. Who pierced him by abandoning him? Disciples. Who pierces him today by turning our backs on him? It's good to know. Good to know. Okay. Let's go back to verse 1, and let's talk about this. Lord, bring revelation as we share. Okay, Acts 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up into heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit. That's a long sentence, isn't it? Man, in my former book, Theophilus. Okay, uh, what's his former book? Luke, that's right. This is Dr. Luke writing. Who in the world is Theophilus? You want the truth? We don't know. And I cannot answer you. All I know, Theophilus means lover of God. This is what, um, this is sort of my belief after study and whatever, is that um, Luke was in Rome with Paul, and Paul is on trial, ultimately killed. Um, but for many years, Luke was there with him. And my belief is that Theophilus was some lover of God or fear of God. And Luke began to write this um, story of the New Testament church. He began to write out the history of the church so that Theophilus would ultimately give his life to King Jesus and, more importantly, I think in Luke's mind, so that Paul would be um, set free and liberated and not be killed. So I think Luke is actually chrono chronology or writing down the, the history of this early church so that um, Paul and, and Rome, uh, that, that Rome will set Paul free. And Theophilus is just the guy who he's writing, which is perhaps, a, perhaps it's a, a um, court appointed, I don't know, a magistrate or a judge or, you know, what we're, we're, we're not really sure. Um, but he goes, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up into heaven after giving instructions uh, through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen about his suffering. Man. Okay, until the day he was taken up into heaven. So that means he ascended. We just read about that. Okay. And after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit. So Jesus' instructions come How? How should we give instructions? Through the Holy Spirit. Where does the Holy Spirit live? If Jesus is in you, the Holy Spirit is in you too. And there's biblical precedent for it being a first work. In other words, when you give your life to Jesus, you're also baptized in the Spirit. There's also biblical precedent for, in fact, these guys gave their life to Jesus, but it's some time later that they're actually filled with the Spirit. And if you've never actually prayed that and, and um, embarked upon a journey of being filled with the Holy Spirit, that's something that I want to encourage you as we look at this book of Acts to begin to explore. 
Uh, Tozer would actually say, be really careful, though, because you're asking to be possessed by another. You are. That's why I use the word surrender your life to Jesus. You're giving up control of your life. Well, it's my house. No, it's not. It's my finances. It's my marriage. It's my kids. It's my job. The idea of the surrendered life is you're actually getting off the throne of your own heart and life and you're becoming um, baptized or full of the Holy Spirit. He's now living inside of you and through you. And when you do things that dishonor or displease, he convicts and you enter into this deep ongoing relationship. Make sense? Okay, let's keep going. Okay, um, after uh, giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen, after his suffering, what's his suffering? Cross. He presented himself to them. Now, who's them? This is not just the 11 apostles at this point. This is probably the 500 around them. So he keeps on appearing to all of these people. I, I can imagine that a couple weeks ago we, were, we concluded John, and Jesus is on that little beach at Mensa Christi, and he's cooking the fish, and he's cooking the bread. Do you think there were onlookers? Yeah, I'd be looking on. Okay. Uh, he presented himself to them, and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Uh, see how even scientific Luke is in his language here? He gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, there's a number of things that we're opening today, but there's this big thing that I want to open about our assumptions, our expectations, and then our disappointment. And I want you to understand something about the Jewish people, and then I'm going to do what I always try to do, which is pivot and focus on who? You and me. Okay. So he appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Now, when Jesus says, or Luke says, even at this point, when he says kingdom of God, what is a Jewish person thinking of? Okay, so the Jewish person in this day and age is thinking of this um, sort of promise um, that, that they were, were God's chosen people. And, and the Jews at this point in time took that to mean that they were destined for special privilege and world domination. I mean, really, that's, that's the way um, they understood this. So they were waiting for a Messiah that would come like King David in the Old Testament and be kind of a warlord that would overthrow Rome and overthrow Herod. And so the entirety of the Jewish nation is waiting for this, uh, this God, this Messiah to come and to set up um, a, a, a kingdom that would rule and reign. And so they have some assumptions um, and they have some expectations that are are not currently happening, and they become disappointed. Okay, so just hang that. I even called this this morning, disappointed with Jesus. Okay, uh, verse 4, on one occasion while he was eating with them. Now, why would um, Luke include this? Uh, do phantoms eat? Do ghosts eat? Uh, do hallucinations eat? You see, Luke's even, like, his writing here is so concrete and so scientific. He's saying, this Jesus, this resurrected king, this Lord, this God, was there in person, and he is eating to demonstrate and show, again, like the scars, that he is real, and he did conquer death and hell. He is in a new heavenly resurrected body like you and I will get when we cross over the shroud into eternity. And so he says, uh, on, when he was eating with them, he gave them this command— do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised. 
What's that gift? That's the Holy Spirit, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, cross-reference, you don't have to turn here, I will. Uh, Matthew 3.11, but you might want to write it down. Matthew 3.11, I'm not going to dig fully into it, but John the Baptist is talking right there. Um, and he says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I am, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Okay, back to this, verse 5. In a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So they know, there's like this thing that they know that is coming, but they don't fully understand what it is. They don't understand how to access it. And guess what? They're not in control of it. They're totally out of control. They are waiting for a gift that the Father has promised. And I, I would guess that they're all sort of wondering, what does this even mean? In rabbinic tradition, when you look back, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And I imagine they're waiting for this holy overshadowing to happen in their midst. But what is that going to look like? And what's going to actually happen inside of them? And what's going to change once the Holy Spirit comes? I, I'm sure they have no idea. In fact, I would even propose to you that I bet some of them gave up and walked out because they went, I don't know what we're waiting for. I don't know what this is going to look like, and I'm impatient. I had expectations that Jesus was going to come, and he was going to be a warrior king that would overthrow Rome, that would overthrow Herod, that would set us free, and this little 40-mile by 120-mile country in Palestine would set up for world domination, and we would become God's special people, and we would dominate and lead the world. Is it happening? Now, let's begin to pivot, and we'll come right back to this. What happens when we place unrealistic assumptions or expectations on God? A lot of times we become disappointed, don't we? And we can actually, as people, give up um, on him or on his promises because they don't come in the way we think they should come, the time they think they should come, the manner we think they should come, and we get these expectations. And if God doesn't show up, then we're going to give up. And in fact, there's a lot of times where people will preach or share, I think inadvertently, that if you come to Christ, you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And if you don't become healthy, wealthy, and wise, what can happen? You give up. You get disappointed. You get hurt. So what I want to even begin to open you up to is this disappointment that is growing in them, these expectations that are going unmet. And then I even want to challenge us a step beyond that because I think oftentimes we project expectations and assumptions on other humans. And when those aren't met, what happens? We get disappointed. We get hurt. We give up on people. Okay. So let's keep going. Um... <clears throat> But in a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What are they saying right there? So they're in the presence of the resurrected Jesus. This is God who chose to come to earth as this little baby and born in a stinky manger where animals are kept. And he lived as a carpenter in total poverty. And then he, he ministered to, for three years to mostly the broken and the destitute and those who weren't cool, weren't pretty, and weren't wealthy. And then he dies and he's resurrected and they're waiting and believing that he's the Messiah. And they're hoping he's going to set up this kingdom. And they're convinced that it's going to be so great and they're going to be part of it. And what's happened so far? He's died. 
I would even propose to you, this is purely Michael's conjecture, but I think part of Judas betraying Jesus had to do with the disappointment in Judas's heart. Because I think Judas calculated, if I walk with Jesus, if I give everything to Jesus, if I invest all my money in G- with Jesus, if I give up my career, if I give up my family, if I follow him everywhere, then at the end, when he sets up this messianic kingdom that looks like King David, then I'm going to be a ruler in the new kingdom. And when that didn't happen, when the the kingdom of God became different than what Judas expected, the bitterness began to fester inside of Judas to the point that he betrayed the king. You follow me? Okay. So when they met with him together, they asked him, Lord, they're talking to Jesus, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? A lot of presumption here, a lot of ego here. We are waiting for world domination and special privilege. Now, I want to be very careful, but I want to make one little statement, and you can take it and chew the meat and spit out the bones. We as Americans must be very careful that we don't adopt a similar idea that because we are Christian and a you know, have been a Christian nation that we're destined for special privilege and world domination. And therefore, it becomes, instead of about Jesus, about politics. We'll be very careful. Because Jesus is interested in politics, but he's only interested in politics by the transformation of the human heart. He's not here to set up blue or red or green or, you know, whatever. He's, he's here to transform human hearts. And when people are transformed like Theophilus, they can actually turn around and begin to transform countries and politics. That's the way it works. You, you follow me? So, so it's not, it's not, I'm, I mean, I just voted. Was it yesterday, the day before? I don't know. I early voted. I'm a big fan. Vote. Be an active citizen. But don't, con- don't confuse the kingdom of God and the call that because we are children of God and we do have special privilege, that we're called to some special, unique world domination and he's going to set it up here in America. Be very careful. Okay? Be very careful. Chew the meat and spit the bones there. I say things in here that I intend you guys to be Berean on and to carry and to sift in your relationship with God. I'm not here to feed you Gerber baby food. I'm going to throw things out and you're like, oh my goodness, did he say that? Yeah, you're going to have to wrestle it out. I'm not here to give you all the answers. I'm here to inspire you to know and walk with Jesus and be so enraptured in awe with who he is that you would want to become progressively and more deeply intimately acquainted with his person and presence. That's what we're here to do. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. What's their response? Go back. He said, verse 6, so they met together. They asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Are you going to set us up as a world-dominant power? And he said, no. It's not for you to know the time or hour. Now, are they right that Jesus is going to return at the end? If you read Revelation, he's going to come back the same way he ascended on the clouds, and he's going to set up a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. Yes. Are they right that it's going to be a new Jerusalem, which is located where? In Palestine. That's right. So are they right? Yes. Are they wrong? 
Yes, in their timing. So there's this dichotomy that they're living in, and Jesus does not fully explain it. But I, I want you to hear something here, because I think what we can so easily get into is we can have a perception of what it means to walk with Jesus. If I sing like this, if I talk like this, if I act like this, if this happens, if I read my Bible like this, if I use my five-year journal like Michael says, then I'm going to be experiencing the fullness of God. And there's these assumptions, and then when God doesn't show up in the way that we want or the timing that we want, or he lets our firstborn and our thirdborn get type 1 diabetes, that's our story, then all of a sudden what can happen inside of us? Disappointment and hurt. And I would propose to you that there's probably an entire group of people that are disappointed that all Jesus came to do was establish an unseen kingdom. They couldn't get their heads outside of the fact that he's not trying to overthrow Rome. Rome's going to crumble in a few short years. Jesus already knows it. He's establishing the larger kingdom of God that is eternal and so much further above all of the, the, the Caesars and everybody else. This is the kingdom of God that he's inviting them into. And and yet I would propose to you that there's people who walk away disappointed because he didn't do what they wanted. And if we're not careful, I think that that can become our story. Let's talk just a second here about assumptions. The Jews have a unique perception of Jesus, of the Old Testament, of being God's chosen people, and then they have some assumptions that are actually wrong. Now, this is like um, nothing will destroy a relationship both with God and with people faster than unclarified assumptions. You hear me? Most disagreements in life, take it off of God a second, happen as a result of a misunderstanding of assumptions or expectations. Abby and I have learned this again and again and again. We were actually, um, I don't know, the kids had just gone to bed and we were sitting in the living room talking and this was like Friday night. And she said to me, what are your, uh, I'm mixing assumptions and expectations here, but she said, what are your expectations for tomorrow morning? It was Saturday morning. She's like, are you going to ride in bikes with the kids? Are you going to go take fishing? Are you, I mean, what are we doing? Why did she say that? When we begin to talk about our assumptions and our expectations, there is this safety that we can clarify them, reach agreement, and prevent disappointment. Okay? So I think Jesus in this moment is actually inviting them into clarified assumptions and expectations. And I read these words of Jesus as he is grieved and heartbroken that they are um, entering into wrong assumptions and wrong expectations and are going to live disappointed with him. They're going to probably give up on their actual faith. And then he says to them in verse 7, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay, let's pause there. Let's go back. Um, when we have um, expectations uh, in, with people in relationship and those expectations aren't communicated and they go unmet, what happens? We get hurt. We get disappointed. I was just on the phone. I've got a mentor friend um, that lives in London. He, he's retired. He pastored a church of seven or 800. I meet with him periodically. He's not an overseer, but he's kind of like that at our church for me. Um, and we were talking and, and just about life and people and the expectations that sometimes people put even on a pastor. 
And he said, Michael, I had two, um, they were, one was a worship leader and one was an associate. And he said, they worked for me for years. And at the end of the time they worked for me, both of them individually years apart, came to me and confronted me and said that I'd failed them. And he said, how? And they said, we wanted a deeper, more significant mentoring relationship with you. And you never gave that to us. And he asked their forgiveness, but then he said, did you ever ask me for that? Did you tell me that that was your assumption or that was your expectation? And guess what they said? No. But there was still a brokenness between he and them because there was unclarified assumptions and expectations. Most of marriage counseling, when I sit in marriage counseling with people, is guess what? Talking about assumptions and expectations. We're both going to work. No, we're not. We're sending our kids to public school. Who said anything about kids? I don't want kids. Not only are we going to have kids, we're going to have five of them, and we're going to homeschool them. You got you to sit in some good marriage counseling sessions. I'm like, are you all kidding me? Y'all got to talk about this. I don't believe in a budget. I spend everything I make. I believe in a budget and save everything. I mean, it's like clarifying assumptions and expectations in a church, with friends, um, with a pastor, with a spouse. I mean, this is all absolutely huge. And take it even bigger, clarifying assumptions and expectations with Jesus. What can you expect from this gracious, kind, and gentle Heavenly Father in your life? What assumptions are you making that you actually need to go and repent of? There's times where I've gone, Lord, I've had this assumption that we would, whatever, start Saltbox or we would have kids. And I had this assumption that when we had kids that nobody would have type 1 diabetes. And what happens when the diagnosis comes? Not once, but... And my theology says that you're the God that heals. And you're the God that restores. And my expectations go unmet. And my assumptions about who you are are dashed on the rocks. And if I'm not careful, disappointment enters in. And with disappointment enters bitterness. And with bitterness enters rejection of God. And with rejection of God enters rejection of a spouse. And with rejection of a spouse enters rejection of friends. And with rejection of friends enters a rejection of church. And all of a sudden I am isolated and faithless. Listen to me and make application from the Jews if you want to go from Michael, but make it in your own life. You want a great marriage on a simple level? Clarify assumptions and expectations. Talk about it. You want a great relationship with your church? Assumptions and expectations. Don't live disappointed. You want a great relationship with Jesus? Allow him to clarify. And when the unmet things happen, when your, disappoint, when your expectations or assumptions are dashed on the rocks of anything, Go to Jesus with your disappointment and find a trusted friend and sit down and talk and share. Work it through. Make sense? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. He's talking about when he comes back. Revelation 1-7, and when he sets up the new kingdom and we actually fulfills what they're saying, the, the, the literal new heaven and new earth kingdom. Is, is that going to happen? Yes. Is it going to happen when they want it? No. There's a real good application in your life and my life there. If God's promised it, will it happen? Yes. Is it going to happen when you want it? I assure you, not. <laughs> then he goes, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. Now, why do we receive power? 
Now go there a second. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And, and why? So that you will be my witnesses in Jer- 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 Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. Let's make a couple of statements here before we go to communion. Rick, you can come on out. I would say to you, uh, I, would, I would pose almost a rhetorical question. How do I know if I'm living in a lot of expectations and assumptions? Disappointment. If you are disappointed, if you're disappointed with your pastor, if you're disappointed with yourself, if you're disappointed with your spouse, if you're disappointed with your kids, if you're disappointed with your God, then I would invite you to begin to look at your own heart and go, Lord Jesus, where have I made some assumptions and set some expectations that probably aren't you? And will you help me undo those assumptions and undo those expectations so that I'm not living out of disappointment and hurt and frustration and bitterness? Does that make sense? Some of you, as we're in church, and church is messy, may have disappointments with somebody in this room. That's what happens in church. And people leave churches all the time. Do you know why? Because they have assumptions and expectations that aren't met. They get disappointed. And then what do they do? They leave. One of the things I'm always asking people that are coming into Saltbox, how'd you leave your last church? Did, Did you leave well? Do you need to go and write your former pastor a letter? You need to go and talk to somebody and express something. Maybe you need to ask their forgiveness. I'm convinced that when we as people begin to talk and be real, when we begin to ask each other's forgiveness, admit that we're wrong, we are activating the unseen kingdom of God and the power of God into our lives and injecting his spirit and presence into the moment. I'm convinced. You follow me? anything that I see mature, seasoned believers falling into is disappointment with the church. It's disappointment with God. And I believe God has called us to be a church that is free of disappointment. I believe that Jesus in this passage is actually inviting the disciples and the apostles and all the people around them to shed their assumptions and expectations about the timing and the will and the way of God. Go with how Jesus taught them to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It's not my kingdom come and my will be done. You follow me? That's that's the way he taught us to pray. And I want to invite you in this moment, if you would go, I've got disappointment with my spouse or with my kids or with my brother or with my sister or with my roommate or with my parents or with my God or with my pastor or with my friend, start by knowing yourself. Lord, why am I disappointed? Why am I hurt? And then pick up your pen and write a letter. Pick up the phone and call somebody. Don't send a text. Go visit somebody, talk, ask forgiveness, and let's risk becoming the body of Christ. Thank you for listening to this podcast of Saltbox Church. If this content was helpful to you, please like it, rate it, review it, 
and share it on social media as that is helpful to us. We believe when a person grows in their own Jesus journey, everyone around them benefits and gets better.